Hello, and welcome everybody. Good morning to the East Coast of the United States. Uh, good evening to Asia. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Matt Rojansky. I'm director of the Wilson Center's Cannon Institute. This is our eighth installment of the Global Perspectives series, where we look at uh, countries around the world and their relations with Russia and Russia's relations with them. Uh, today, we're very pleased to be working together with the Asia program here at the Wilson Center and my wonderful colleague, Jean Lee, who will speak to us in moment. She directs the Wilson Center's Hyundai Motor Korea Foundation Center for Korean History and Public Policy. And of course, our special guest today is Andrei Lenkov, uh, whom Jean will introduce in greater detail and who will talk to us about Russia's relationship with North Korea. Uh, before we get started, I want to remind you that to keep track of all of our work on Russia, Eurasia, the region, uh, you can follow our podcast, Ten X and the Russia File, as well as our blogs, uh, also the Russia File, and Focus Ukraine, and you can find those all through the Kennan Institute's website. Uh, speaking of the website, you can uh, find our email there, which you can email right now, starting this minute and anytime throughout the hour to submit questions to us. Uh, that's Kennan, K-E-N-N-A-N, at wilsoncenter.org. You can also tweet us your questions at Kennan Institute or post them on the Kennan Institute Facebook page. Please, when you do that, make sure to include your name and affiliation so I know who's asking the question. So now I want to introduce Jean Lee, uh, who in turn will introduce Andre and begin our conversation. Jean, as I said, directs the Wilson Center's Hyundai Motor Korea Foundation Center for Korean History and Public Policy. She is a Pulitzer-nominated veteran foreign correspondent and herself an expert on North Korea. She led the AP's new uh, coverage of the Korean Peninsula as bureau chief from 2008 to 2013. And in 2011 was the first American reporter granted extensive access on the ground in North Korea and in January 2012, opened up AP's Pyongyang Bureau, the only Western uh, text photo news bureau based in the North Korean capital. She's made dozens of extended reporting trips to North Korea, visiting farms, factories, schools, military academies, and homes in the course of her exclusive reporting across the country. During her tenure, AP's coverage of Kim Jong-il's 2011 death earned an honorable mention in the deadline reporting category of the 2012 AP meeting. Editors Awards for Journalism in the United States and Canada. She also won an online journalism award in 2013 for her role using photography, video, and social media in North Korea, and was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize in feature reporting in 2013. She's a native of Minneapolis and has a bachelor's degree in East Asian Studies and English from Columbia and a master's degree from the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. She worked as a reporter for the Korea Herald Seoul before being posted with AP to the news agencies bureaus in Baltimore, Fresno, California, San Francisco, New York, London, Seoul, and Pyongyang. Jean previously served as a Wilson Center public policy scholar and a global fellow before joining the Asia program as the Korea Center program director. She's a contributor to the New York Times Sunday Review, Esquire Magazine, and other publications, and appears in, as an analyst for CNN, BBC, NPR, PRI, and other media, serving frequently as a guest speaker on career-related topics. She is a member of the National Committee on North Korea and Council of Korean Americans and is, I would add, a wonderful colleague here at the Wilson Center, a true uh, expert in the best sense of that word. And I'm very happy to hand you the floor, Jean, please. Thank you, Matt, for that uber detailed introduction. Uh, it is just such a delight to be able to have this conversation with you and absolutely my pleasure to see Professor Andre Lankov back at the Wilson Center, albeit virtually for today's discussion about Russia and North Korea. So just a little bit about him. 
Dr. Lankov is a professor of history at Kunlin University in Seoul, South Korea, where he's taught since 2004. So thank you, Andre, for staying up late to join us today. He completed his undergraduate degree and his PhD at Leningrad uh, State University. And I believe he spent some of that time studying in Pyongyang at Kim Il-sung University. So certainly not an opportunity many of us have. And I think that certainly informed so much of his analysis on North Korea. He's written a number of books on North Korea over the years. And I have to tell you that some of them were among the first books I bought when I was posted to Seoul as AP bureau chief. And I'm just gonna mention a few, few of the titles from Stalin to Kim Il-sung, The Formation of North Korea, 1945 to 1960. Crisis in North Korea, the failure of de-Stalinization, and uh, North of the DMZ, essays on daily life in North Korea, and the real North Korea. Those are among his the books that he's written, incredibly prolific. He's also a former Wilson Center fellow. He served, uh, he did do a stint with the Cannon Institute. So we're happy to have him in our alumni network and definitely seen him lurking around our history and public policy program doing archival research as well. So I just want to say that I think this, this discussion we're having today is very timely. We did not know when we scheduled this, how timely it would be, but the South Korean president, Moon Jae-in, is literally on his way uh, to Washington, D.C., will be arriving later today for a summit with President Biden, and North Korea is sure to be on that agenda. We also have Secretary uh, Blinken meeting with Sergei Lavrov in Iceland today, and meanwhile, the North Koreans have been extremely quiet, very quiet on the diplomatic front. They've cloistered themselves in a kind of self-imposed isolation since January 2020. And that has raised a lot of concerns about the state of North Korea's economy. And I would say questions about how they're getting the money to stay afloat and to continue to build their weapons arsenal. So given the possibility that we'll start to see more multilateral diplomacy on North Korea with the Biden administration. I think it's a good time to look closely at all the relationships so that we can better understand the both the historical and the current dynamics that are at play. And so I am really looking forward to hearing Dr. Lankov share his insights on how he sees Russia and North Korea positioning themselves at this critical juncture. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us, doc Dr. Lankov, and I'm going to turn the Zoom podium over to you. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. I have been uh, basically at the center at the institute many, many times. I don't know even how many, quite a lot, but well, thanks, oh, thanks, not thanks, due to the current situation, uh, it's impossible. Anyway, thank you for inviting me so I can at least participate in our kind of virtual event. Well, and now go, go straight to the business. Is Russia important to North Korea? Is North Korea important to Russia? I would say to an extent, to in some degree, maybe less than most people are inclined to believe, but still important. What are the major goals and concerns of Russia, some of which reflect the current political, domestic political situation and authoritarian trends of the current Russian government. And some are pretty universal. So if one day, Russia, within our lifetime, Russia becomes a full democracy, which is a big if, 
I don't think that many of these trends are going to be seriously different. Uh, so what are the major goals of Russia? Probably I will start from kind of defining three major goals Russia has in dealing with North Korea. Uh, first of all, Russia is interested in status quo, or we actually should divide it into two parts. First of all, Russia wants stable Northeast Asia. Why? Not because Russia is such a peace and stability-loving country. But any conceivable trouble near very vulnerable, sparsely populated, and frankly sort of underdeveloped Russian Far East is not going to be a good news. Also, uh, countries which are likely to take advantage of such a trouble are largely countries whose relations with Russia are relatively, well, not perfect, let's say. I wouldn't say bad, sometimes bad. So Russia wants stability because it has little to gain from, yes, of course, every crisis means opportunities. You can be dynamic, decisive, ruthless, brutal, determined, and you can get a lot from a crisis. Problem is resources. Russia doesn't have resources and doesn't have much interest in dealing with a possible crisis in this part of the world. So stability comes first. Second, Russia would like to see status quo, which means division. Of course, official line of the Russian government, American government, any government is that we all dream about unified Korea. I strongly suspect that any government, with the possible exception of the United States, and not because of the United States are remarkably selfless, uh, but because of completely different reasons, I don't think that any government really would like to see a unified career right now. And Russia is no exception. Uh, because unified career is likely to be dominated by the South. Probably it will remain a close ally of the United States. And it's definitely a bad news for the Russian government. Or alternatively, a crisis in North Korea might trigger Chinese intervention and emergence of a Chinese-controlled regime in what is now North Korea. Well, probably it will still have the same name. Neither scenario is good. So Russia would like North Korea to be stable and Korean Peninsula divided stably divided. No war, no revolution, no unification, no famine, nothing dramatic. Is the basic line. And what about denuclearization? It's clearly uh, a part of agenda, but it's a very distant third. Stability comes first. By the way, Russia will gradually accept unification as long as it goes smoothly. You, uh, uh, division maintenance comes second, and denuclearization comes third. But there is one problem. In recent years, few, if any, Russian analysts, both inside and outside the government, seriously believes that there are any real chances uh, that North Korea would surrender its nuclear weapons. Some people here probably can probably remember that I spent last 15 years at least uh, basically yelling at every corner that denuclearization is not going to happen. 
uh, is getting a sort of majority opinion everywhere. And I would say maybe, uh, but, but I would say what I've been saying, it's pretty close to the opinions of the majority, pretty much overwhelming majority in Russia, including the Russian government. On this point, I completely in complete agreement with Mr. Putin. And well, uh, the basic assumption is that North Korea believes that nuclear weapons are vital for their security. You can say national security, you can say regime security. It depends on your individual political taste. Uh, but the assumption is that it's vital. And so it will not commit suicide. The North Korean elite will not commit a collective suicide by surrendering nuclear weapons. Nobody can blackmail North Korea in denuclearization. Nobody can bribe North Korea in denuclearization. So denuclearization is part of the Russian agenda, but everybody understands it's a distant dream, which probably will never come become part of life, at least well in the next few decades. So in practical life, three policies. It sounds remarkably like goals of China. So there is little surprise that to a very large extent, Russian policy towards North Korea is influenced by the Chinese policy. And it's logical. While China does not, sorry, while Russia does not necessarily, is not necessarily happy about increase of the Chinese influence in the region, Russia is not happy about it. However, uh, um, basically on this line, Russia and China have similar interests, stability, division, denuclearization in such order, but there is one difference. Russian stakes are much, much lower because uh, Russia, from the Russian point of view, North Korea is a distant country far away. Uh, it's not widely understood. I always see that it's not widely appreciated uh, because in current American political discussion, Russia, uh, Russia's Russian significance is completely inflated out of all proportion. When you read uh, American media, you, you see that Russia is basically maybe the third largest country in the world. And uh, Koreans, they cannot really accept that some country, some countries don't see Korean issue as the most pressing issue of the world politics. Uh, but it's, it's a sad truth. For Russia, North Korea and Korea is a distant country far away and, far, uh, and it's really the case because yes, Russia and North Korea share a border which is roughly 12 or 14 kilometers long. Border with China is about, North Korea's border with China is 1000 kilometers. And uh, on top of that, uh, on the Russian side of the border, you have sparsely populated, seriously underdeveloped, I wouldn't say even agricultural area, it's largely forests. Basically, tigers, bears, a lot of tigers, they say there, a lot of tigers, uh, but not many people. And uh, so it's this really a distant place. So goals are similar with the goals of China, uh, but stakes are much lower. And from here, we go to another way, how much Russian government and, uh, is going to pay for achieving the goals. We see that uh, currently China is supporting North Korea on a relatively large scale. Judging by the dynamics of the market retail prices in Korea, you can be absolutely certain that North Koreans are getting significant Chinese aid, both as fuel and as food. 
What about Russia? Is Russia going to provide some help to North Korea, some assistance? Yes. Is it going uh, to be large scale? Definitely not. Uh, because when we look at the scale of trade, well, uh, before before the 2017, uh, when uh, the UN Security Council resolutions and a bit later COVID-19 pandemics created a total mess with everything, uh, the trade between uh, China and North Korea was roughly $6 billion a year trade volume. A trade volume with Russia was roughly 100 million. People in the know will tell you that there is a, that a Russian officially reported 100 million is not true. I know it. It's not true. Uh, because a great deal of trade is done through China. Uh, not so much because of political reasons. It's now increasingly politics, but used to be just logistics. And so uh, some some part of trade, some part of Russian goods go to China, and then they, from China they go to North Korea. They are reported in the custom statistics as trade with China. There is also a small, not, not quite negligible, but small illegal trade. So real figure is probably used to be three, four, maybe, maybe 500 million. Still, 10 times smaller than trade with China. Personally, I'm inclined to say it's probably 20 or 30 times less. And once again, when we're listening about this kind of trade via China, which is true, we, you have to keep in mind other part of the story. There is China also does a great deal of always done. Chinese companies, Chinese individuals have always done a great deal of illegal smuggling to and from North Korea, which is also not a part of the Chinese statistics. So Chinese statistics also underreport the scale of trade. So Russia is not 100 billion, maybe two, maybe three, maybe four. I'm talking about period before the sanctions, 2016. But China is also not 6 billion, it's probably 10 billion. So the gap is really, really large. We are talking about 10, 20, 30, maybe 40 times difference in the volume of trade. And it reflects pretty well the level of interest uh, and level of stakes Russia has in North Korean issue in relation to China. So basically, I would say that unlike China, Russia is not going to provide North Korea with systematic, meaningful amount of aid. Some aid will be delivered, like China is doing it, both legally, so to say, and in defiance of the UN, UN Security Council resolutions. But the scale is not going to be in large. It's not going to make much difference in the future of North Korea. And it's going to be welcomed. However, even if you look at how North Korea's behave, you see that uh, basically summit between Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin happened only once. How many times did he meet Xi Jinping? I suddenly forgot, four times or five times? Yeah, uh, so uh, it's basically another reflection, the same level. Whenever you look scale of aid, scale of trade, number of high level visits, you see the same basically different, basically five, 10, 15 times, sometimes 20 times. And it does reflect marginality of the North Korean issue.
what's going to change it if if it's going to change i would say the increasing confrontation the increase in the level on volume of confrontation between uh, the russian federation and united states of america or generally speaking western countries is uh, uh, basically uh, uh, eu will count as well if it happens maybe out of because of the principle our enemy's enemy is our friend maybe because of some uh, tactical considerations i cannot completely rule out that the exist assistance for north korea is going to be increased but personally i don't see it as a likely scenario and we should keep in mind that many people who are influencing this russian policy towards north korea have good memory they are old enough to remember the late soviet era and they remember how north korea was consuming large amount of the soviet aid giving almost nothing in return and even if people are young they still have been told the stories many times they know and the general assumption is that even if you invest a lot in north korea benefits of such investment are highly dubious finally i have about few minutes five six minutes i would like to also mention uh, the economic uh, uh, pr prospects and the oft and this frequently discussed railway and gas pipeline projects but let's start from general uh kind of trade one of the reasons why trade between russia and north korea is so small is basically their major reason is simple their economies are mutually incompatible uh, uh, russia has a lot to sell to north korea but it's willing to sell on the international prices and north korea is not capable of paying international market prices of course they will be happy to buy russian jet fighters and maybe well not now under sanctions but few years ago it would be possible but they had no money to pay and nobody was going to give it free of charge on the other hand of few items where north korea has competitive advantages only one is of marginal well not many marginal some interest for the russian economy well frankly marginal what are the items north koreans are good at selling first of all mineral resources but they believe that russia this entire siberia and its disposal the chinese uh, sorry north korean coal is of little no a little use uh, uh mineral resources russia has a, a lot so at the end of the day north korea is probably a competitor in this area seafood well seafood can russians don't like fish i don't like fish myself i was buying some lunch today for me my secretary of course he took some fish and of course i took some meat i was growing in the society i was i'm from working class uh, a russia russian family and we i was growing with the assumption that fish is for those who have no money or whichever to get real stuff which is meat beef or pork i still believe it uh, so and if you look at the food seafood consumption i have not checked by from, straight from my memory it's something like 19 kilos per person and going down which is very small in korea in say northern europe you have 50 60 kilos in russia it's 19 uh, so korean seafood thank you very much it's not the stuff we eat 
with few exceptions, of course, basically not much, not much interest. And finally, we have textile and, well, Bangladesh will do, India will do, Vietnam will do. The only item uh, where Korea has, North Korea has competitive advantages is, of course, labor. Uh, because North Korean workers have been in Russia since 1946. I repeat, 1946, not 1967, as you can find in most materials, God knows why, because they had been before 1967 for 20 years. And it was never a secret, never hidden. Uh, uh, the only difference those who came earlier, they could basically uh, escape. They, many of them took Russian citizenship and they happily living in the 90s. Maybe some of them, I have met some of them. And largely their children and children. Anyway, there is some demand for North Korean labor, especially in the Far Eastern area. But let's face it, it's not a major issue. Uh, of course, uh, when in 2017, 2019, North Korean workers began, had to leave, most of them had to leave Russia. Um, uh, I, I talked to some officials in the Far East, they were really, really mad. They said we suddenly lost about one third, one third of our workforce in the construction industry. As usual, these Moscow people made decisions without consulting us, blah, blah, blah. It's usual type of talk you are going to hear in the forest. Uh, but having said that, it's still not vital for the country at large, even though some construction projects in Vladivostok or Khabarovsk have been threatened. Finally, in the remaining three minutes, I will talk about uh, something which is talked a lot about the railway and uh, gas pipeline. I probably concentrate on railway, but everything I'm going to say about railway is completely applicable to the pipeline as well. You know, I like to tell the story how in the late 1990s, I came across a South Korean family. They had a boy who was going to enter college and they suggested that he should study Russian because railway link was going to be constructed very soon and there will be a great deal of jobs, they said in 1998-1999. I have lost connections with this family, uh, but uh, this boy, he is probably in his, well, I would say early 40s by now. And where is the railway link? And I can assure you it's not going to happen anytime soon. Why? Because... Uh, the railway link for, from the point of view of the Russian railways, it's a high-risk project. Once actual construct, uh, the estimated price, well, there are many estimates, but let's say, personally, we have no time, and it's not really that necessary to go into details. Let's say we are talking about roughly 10 billion US dollars, maybe more a bit. And because you have to build everything from the scratch. The North Korean railway system is not really a railway network. It's a living museum of the railway history. It's a 1930s technology. End of story. Um, when they occasionally let me in, I'm, well, bit, a bit of railway history fun. I enjoy it. Having said that, uh, so basically, if imagine we have beginning of the walk, uh, Russian uh, railway companies began to build uh, the new everything in you, and then something happens. North Korean government decides it's time to raise kind of, uh, kind of um, tension and they launch a missile. Conservatives take power in Seoul and stop all projects with North Korea. Hardliners take power in Washington and stop projects. China also can do something. As a result, once real construction begins, uh, the Russian investors are going to become essentially um, uh, prisoners 
essentially prisoners of the uh, foreign of the foreign politics, and they don't want to be it. They don't want to become such prisoners. They want they uh, uh, they uh, the, the uh, Russian railway company. If they invest, will just lose money, a lot of money, because of some political crisis. They don't ha have uh, control over. They don't want to be prisoners. They don't want to be hostages. Uh, and it's why there is an interest, but it can become reality only if either some outside forces, not Russian company, if somebody pays for the project, Russian railways will participate. Or alternatively, if we have, say, 10 or 15 years of stable relations and cooperation between two Korean states, but they believe it's complete fantasy, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, not least because a North Korean state, which is freely interacting with South Korean state, is not going to survive for more than five years. If you have free interaction with the South allowed in North Korea, North Korea will go down in flames immediately. Very simple. Uh, so uh, it means that all this project is a probably just, you know, it will happen eventually, uh, but not anytime soon. Maybe it's a task for 2075. Well, it's probably all what I wanted to say. Just summary in 30 seconds. Yes, there is interest. Uh, major goal, stability, division, denuclearization. Nobody seriously believes in denuclearization. Massive inf uh, influence of China uh, because China has same goals at much higher stakes. Stakes are low. Economies are not compatible. Trade volume is uh, low and unlikely to increase. Long-term investment projects are possible in a very long run, but not in the foreseeable future. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, Andre. Um, you really uh, covered the waterfront, uh, despite your uh, preference against consuming seafood. And it reminds me, of course, of uh, my ill-fated efforts to maintain a vegetarian diet in Russia and Ukraine, when I will tell my friends and, and, uh, and colleagues, uh, I'm not eating meat. And they say, well, well sausage isn't meat, so have some sausage. Um, <laughs> maybe that's the compromise between seafood and beef and pork. Um, just a reminder to those in the audience, if you have questions, please email kenan at wilsoncenter.org, tweet Kennan Institute or post on our Facebook page. Um, before I take uh, the audience questions, though, I want to go to Jean uh, to offer kind of an initial comment and any questions that she might might want to inject in the conversation. Jean, please. Thank you. I have so many questions, but I will try to limit myself, uh, being the journalist that I am. Uh, I think that what's so what's so wonderful about having Dr. Lankov join this discussion is that he really illustrates how complicated the relationship between North Korea and Russia is. I think from Washington, we tend to, because we're so far, and perhaps Matt, you probably have a much more sophisticated, nuanced understanding, uh, but we tend sometimes to forget to look at the, the complicated nature of these relationships, both historically and today, but I think that you've really laid that out. I, the, uh, it's so interesting to look back at history and consider the relationship in terms of North Korea's reliance on the Soviet Union in the early part of the making of modern North Korea, the establishment of North Korea. I mean, obviously, uh, we have a divided peninsula partly because we had that division in 1945 and the Soviets coming down from the north and the Americans coming from the south, right, and dividing the peninsula 
at the 38th parallel. Uh, but then the, the, uh, the devastation of the withdrawal of support from the Soviet Union following the collapse in the early 1990s. And of course, as we know, that was followed by a, uh, a famine known as the arduous march that kills perhaps up to 2 million North Koreans. And I think we've seen the shift in influence uh, from Russia, uh, away from Russia and the Soviet Union since that period, uh, as, as North Korea has tried to figure out how to stand on its own uh, and perhaps a shift toward China. But I have to say, having spent so much time in North Korea, I recognized when I was there how, how weak my understanding was of the Soviet influence on the making of North Korea. Because when you go to Pyongyang, and, and I have to say that I did cover, I did go to Russia on assignment as well as a journalist. And so having had that experience, maybe a year or two before going to North Korea, I was able to see the influence and the connections between Russia and Korea in their society, in their culture, in their economy. And I don't know that I would have had that understanding had I uh, not spent some time in Russia. And for me, living in North Korea, all the champagne we bought was Russian. <laughs> so there clearly was a strong presence. Lot of, that little bit of trade, I don't know how much of, there is, of that trade is still going on now. Now, I just wanted to um, draw on this. You, you did really illustrate the uh, lack of trade, particularly in comparison to the potential trade with China. Um, and I'm glad that you mentioned the laborers because I was going to ask you about that. I've made a note to ask you about that uh, because you mentioned the impact from the Russian perspective on losing, you, I think you said it was one third of its workforce in the region. Uh, in parts of Russia where North Korean construction workers have been active. But what about the perspective from the North Koreans? What are you hearing? And I know that you spend a lot of time talking to defectors. How important was it for them to be in Russia in these jobs? What did it mean for them? And then how many laborers do we think are still there? I remember seeing a report that uh, from Russia saying that they had missed that December 20. 19 deadline to send workers back to North Korea. And then a couple of days later, so they made that announcement in January 2020, the Russians. And then we saw a couple of days later that North Korea closed the border. So does that mean there are significant numbers of North Koreans still working in Russia? So I'm curious for you to share with us the importance of that, uh, that labor force in Russia for the North Koreans. Uh, and I might just I may just ask that question, Matt, if that's okay, and ask him to answer that, and perhaps we can go on from there. Please. Andre, you'll have to unmute. Yes, I will try to be short. Uh, first of all, just to make certain, I have always been arguing against a decision, UNS a UNSC decision, about ban on the North Korean labor. I wish that uh, the Russian government, probably driven by considerations I like, or considerations I don't like, it's irrelevant, will find legal, semi-legal, or illegal ways to keep these people, period. It's my political statement. Why? Uh, because what I can easily see, and which has been the case for 50 years, oh, sorry, for 70 years. First, for the average North Korean now, going to work overseas, it basically means Middle East, or Russia. China is possible, but far, far less profitable. Going over, work overseas is the only way 
to create enough money to start his own business. Most of these people go to Russia. They work in very bad conditions. Their, uh, their chances of die as a result of incident, I suddenly forgot, about two times roughly. Don't quote me. If you like, you can check my article. I published an article in English about it recently. Uh, about two times higher than the chances, or even more, maybe three, uh, than the uh, general number of incidents in the industry. They work, they work 12 or 14 hours, everything. They have to give most of their income to the state. It's a confiscationary stuff. It's true. At the same time, uh, until again 2017, when everything beca became a mess, you, the average uh, the average worker made a between one and two uh, well not made saved saved between one and two thousand dollars per year. It means you spent in Russia three years, you come back with five thousand dollars. It's enough for your wife. It's always done by your wives. Uh, your wife will open a small kiosk or shop somewhere in Pyongyang or buy a trade uh, a kind of met there, a kind of, you know, place on a market. And it means that you will become a solid middle-class family. And the only, it's the only way for them to get it. And when people tell you they are slaves, I tell you that in the 17th century in Central Africa, nobody was going to bribe a village elder for the right to boat a slave ship to the Caribbean Sea. And every single Korean who is in Russia has bribed officials and security officials and party supervisors. Price used to be again before 2016, $400, $500 per person. You pay this bribe for the right to go to Russia, to become a slave, quote unquote. And when you come back, you usually save some money pay another round of bribe to do another round of bribing and go again. Because once again, is the only way to learn what's going on. So, so no, the only way to, to make money. And there is another part of the story. It's for only way for them to learn what's going on in the outside world. Technically, they are bent to have smartphones. Everybody has smartphones. They are uh, searching, surfing the South Korean website like crazy. I can tell you a couple of stories, anecdotal evidence from my recent trip to Vladivostok. In one flat, uh, they, they used to have a North Korean worker who was putting tile. Uh, good work, good work, well done. Uh, and first it was a small work team, then the only one person. He made a agreement with a kind of employer, actually it was his flat, uh, that uh, he will have a long lunch break for about two hours. And he will be sitting, eating his lunch, and watching South Korean TV through satellite dish. Other story, another one. He was uh, a guy who was employing the North Koreans. And then again, there was one person walking his uh, dacha, his uh, countryside house. And he basically visited this guy uh, with a bottle of vodka. They got drunk. And this guy, he began to say very nasty stuff about Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-un and everything. And began to uh, basically praise Russia because it's a wonderful free country. You cannot understand how happy you are, how rich and free you are. These people who go there, they come back with ideas. Yes, they are not going to be noisy. They are smart enough to keep their mouths shut, but they have different ideas in their brain. They knew how the world operates 
And when opportunity arises, if it arises, which is a big if again, they will be a major force to change the country. And on top of that, they all are bringing money and this money are not go are going basically to the small independent businesses. They are helping North Korean families to get out of poverty, out of destitution. It's why I'm completely supporting it. How many people are now? I know not. I think it's uh, between, I would say, seven, eight thousand. Now, they are not going to go uh, back anytime soon because borders are closed and I'm happy about it. And I hope that the Russian government will find some ways to sneak these people back as, mu as much as possible. If I know the ways, I'm not going to share it, uh, but I hope I wish them success. So Matt, I'm just going to clarify that for North Koreans, as many people may know, uh, it's illegal for them to, to watch foreign content, uh, well, I should say Western and South Korean content. So what Dr. Lankoff describes is something we hear from North Koreans who do go overseas, that it provides them with this opportunity. They can buy a phone fairly cheaply and access the internet for the first time. That's not something that most North Koreans can do. And so you have, even though these difficult conditions, this opportunity to see what life is like outside. And it, we always consider it's, it's an interesting risk that the regime is taking as well, right? In, in allowing, they want their workers to go out there and make money and send it back. Uh, but it's an interesting dilemma for us as well uh, in, in how to look at this. Yes, it provides them with a chance to experience the outside world and take that experience and that insight back to North Korea, but they are also making money that could be funneled back to the to, to the North Korean regime and, and, and who knows where that's going. So it's an interesting question. I think that um, Dr. Lankov, I'm not sure that those their visas I think would have expired so they would be working illegally in Russia if they're there now. I did have one follow-up question, Matt, before I, I um, turn back to you, but I wanted to ask Dr. Lankov what he, so I am actually co-hosting a podcast about North Korea and cyber called The Lazarus Heist on the BBC World Service and our episode launching this week and next week does focus on North Korea's workers overseas. We don't go into Russia so much in detail, but I'm curious, do you think that we've seen reports about both Russians and North Koreans suspected in cyber hacks recently, uh, the uptick in cyber hacks, particularly on vaccine labs? Do you think there's any collaboration there? I know I'm just speculating, but I'm wondering if you've heard anything about that. Uh, you mean, sorry, I, I probably misunderstood. You are asking about cyber attacks collaboration. Well, I'm not privy in what, to what is happening deep in the Intel services, and sometimes strange things happening. But having said that, personally, if you ask my probability, no, I don't think so. If you look at the reports, uh, Kaspersky Lab, which is a major Russian security cybersecurity lab, which is often accused of cooperation with the government, excessively close, I would say. They basically put everybody on alert. Uh, I think it was about a year ago, a bit less, about North Korean efforts to hack into the Russian missile programs. And it was a big kind of, it was not really big because it goes against the main line of the Western media. It's difficult for Western reader to swallow such a difficult contradictionary ideas because one baddies are fighting other baddies. How can it be? Wow. Anyway, uh, so personally, I don't see giving that for North Korean cyber attacks, especially when it comes to intel gathering, Russia is a major target. 
I cannot, I am very skeptical about any kind of cooperation, at least approved by the government, because in such cooperation, both sides are learning way too much. And frankly, I don't see why, say, the Russian hackers, government-sponsored hackers would care to cooperate with the North Koreans. So I'm highly skeptical. And I believe that no sane Russian government, democratic or otherwise, will be happy to provide North Koreans too much insights in the Russian security systems, exactly because when it comes to stealing uh, uh, vital technological data, their major goal is Russia. Because their entire technological culture, their entire weapon system is based on the Russian designs. So they are not particularly probably that interested in the American missile designs. They will be thankful to learn, but not much more. Because they can, it will be much more difficult for them to copy. And the Russian designs is their dream. As somebody who has basically uh, email broken by the Nascarians a few times a year, successfully or not, I know not, but I have to take some precautions, uh, I can assure you these people are very active. So, uh, Andre and, and Jean, let me bring in uh, a few questions here uh, from our listeners. Uh, Peter talked at EKF Denmark. Uh, notes that uh, the Soviet Union, uh, Russia afterwards largely abandoned North Korea in the early 90s. Um, how do you perceive this uh, past relationship uh, influencing trust and the relationship today? And if I can add to that, um, it's interesting, uh, Andre, in a way you, you're presenting today's Russia as a window uh, to the outside world, presumably also a window to the West. But then you, you remarked on the kind of zero-sum nature of Russia's own conflict with the West and, of course, the reality we see in Russia today of uh, Western content being increasingly either blocked or uh, somehow limited, uh, treated as a foreign agent, et cetera. Okay, I see you shaking your head. So why don't you comment on that aspect of, of uh, the sort of ups and downs in, in the history of uh, the relationship there? I see two parts. Talking about Russia, yes, uh, the government uses a Western agent uh, description, uh, which basically creates problem for, say, independent media when they try to find advertisement. It's true. And there are many things. But uh, Russia is not China. I'm repeating it. Russia is not China. Uh, there is essentially no noticeable internet censorship more internet censorship in the Republic of Korea than in the Russian Federation. As a person who uh, lives sufficiently, frequently visits both countries, I can assure you. So if you, yes, it's not, I'm not saying that Russia is a democracy, God forbid, uh, but it has uh, a great deal of bloggers who write nasty stuff about the government and nobody is blocking them. You can just check some blogs and you see, wow, and nothing happens to it. Finally, I'm not aware about any attempts to block any significant Western and especially South Korean website. And basically, I can assure you that uh, North Korean workers are not reading stuff about Russian pro-democracy movement. They prefer to read South Korean media, which is freely accessible. By the way, most of the stuff about Russian pro-democracy movement is also freely accessible. Government uh, try to suppress, tries to suppress them, but they are doing it in different ways, not Chinese ways. 
unfortunately increasing the smell of China, but it's small smell so far, light smell. I don't like it, but it's anyway, having said that. Uh, so the first question is about feeling of abandon. I believe it's a completely wrong description. Uh, because people, uh, somebody who has written a couple of books and now thinking about another big book about the history which partially deals with relation between North Korea and uh, Soviet Union. Well, I'm sure that person who asked this question is not perfectly aware that in the 19th, early 1960s, all officials who were seen as sympathetic to the Soviet Union lost their jobs. Everybody who before 1945, with very few exceptions, who worked in the Soviet Union and then moved to Korea, all they all were ethnic Koreans, of course, they were basically lost their jobs and best were sent to prison or executed at worst. All North Koreans who married Russian women, it was all, nearly always North Korean males, uh, Russian females, were ordered to divorce their wives and wives were deported from North Korea in the 1960s. Uh, it was uh, all Soviet publications in North Korea in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and so on were off limits. You needed security clearance in North Korea to read Pravda or Izvestia. You needed security clearance. Uh, so relations were very, very bad. And in the internal propaganda, most of the time, North Koreans, yeah, they used to say nice stuff about earlier periods of the Soviet of the Soviet history of the Soviet Union under Stalin, but even then they were playing down the real significance of the Soviet connection systematically up to comical way. Like if you read North Korean books, you will discover that North Korean books insist that liberation of North Korea from the Japanese was achieved by the North Korean fighting forces, which actually did not exist. Not a single Korean was fighting in Korea. According to the North Korean story, uh, North Korea was liberated by the mighty army commanded by Kim Il-sung. Kim Il-sung was a second, well, no, a junior officer in the Soviet army. Uh, he had about 100 soldiers under his command, none of whom took any part in the war. And the Soviet military is mentioned as a kind of auxiliary force following the orders from Kim Il-sung. It's a bit like, I don't know, I don't know even to compare, no good comparison comes from European history to my mind. Yeah, so relations have always been very, very tense. It was not a kind of brotherhood and alliance. In the internal propaganda, North Koreans have always described Soviet Union as a revisionist power which have betrayed socialism. In the 60s, in the 70s, and the 80s, they said, we have right socialism. Chinese are bad, Russians are even worse. Don't trust Soviet Union, they are enemies. If you are cozy to the Russians, you will be investigated. It was a normal situation. Uh, so yes, there was a great deal of support, uh, but support was driven by geopolitical uh, considerations because North Korea was equally decisively unpopular in the Soviet Union uh, in the 60s, 70s and 80s. So it was kind of, it was not a kind of friendship, it was a marriage of convenience. Because of geopolitical reasons, uh, both each side need, uh, the sides needed one another. Yep. So, Matt, I was just going to jump in to make one comment, which is that I, I was just looking through some of my photos from Pyongyang in 2010, and I have a picture of a portrait of Lenin, that massive portrait that used to hang at Kim Il Sung Square in Pyongyang, which is their main plaza. And of course, and then I remember going to the plaza in I think it was in 2012, and it was down. 
So from one day it was up, next day it was down. April 2012. April exactly. 2012. Exactly. April 2012. That was when Kim Jong-un made his first speech, if you recall. Uh, and then we then we saw the slogan Marxism-Leninism replaced by Kim Il-sungism, Kim Jong-ilism. So it was very interesting to note those things. You know, I, I, I was just going to say that I do think that North Korea and Russia are very pragmatic about their relationship and uh, that that President Putin does jump in when he sees the opportunity, especially if it is an opportunity to show uh, some leadership in the region. Um, North Korea is very smart about rely turning to Russia when it has a chance to play the game of divide and conquer with the countries that it's dealing with. Uh, and so that is something that I, I see them doing very strategically. There is a traditional relationship. And so that trip that Kim Jong-un made by train to Vladivostok, it was almost a complete replica of a trip that his father made to the region. So the propaganda was there to show, you know, Kim Jong-un uses it very strategically for his propaganda show to show that he's following in the footsteps to a certain degree and that they have this shared heritage. Uh, but um, I think what will be interesting is to see if something comes out of these talks in Iceland, uh, comes out of the discussion about a more multilateral uh, engagement with North Korea, and whether they're able to change the dynamic of you, of having this Russian-North Korean relationship that is there to, to step in when it's convenient, or if they're able to, to bring that relationship into the core discussion when it comes to denuclearization. You know, Dean, you, you remind me uh, with the reference to the special train trip 20 years ago, I think it was exactly 20 years ago this summer, if I'm not mistaken, because uh, I was a student and I was in Russia when it happened. And I actually rode, if I'm not mistaken, my recollection is that uh, Kim Jong-il actually went up to St. Petersburg and uh, his train could only accommodate a certain number uh, of his retinue. And so I rode the normal Russian train, which was packed with North Korean diplomats, um, many of whom actually didn't speak a word of Russian or of English, um, but really enjoyed drinking and playing cards overnight, which is what you do on that train. Uh, and then I did get to see uh, Kim Jong-il's uh, limousine on the street uh, in St. Petersburg uh, the next day. So uh, I have my, my personal brush with, uh, with North Korean stardom. Um, just a final question. We have barely five minutes remaining. You guys have raised the issue of diplomacy, the potential of multilateral diplomacy, the influence that Russia may have in that picture. Um, you know, what would be your forecast for the resumption of something like a six-party uh, approach to the North Korean issue? And do you think that Russia at this point, you know, with all of its various interests at stake, including the conflict uh, with the United States, do you think Russia will be poised to be, say, helpful in that equation? Uh, help, helpful to whom and in which degree? Big question. I think Russia wants status quo and again would like to keep North Korean nuclear program under control. As I have said, no, no sane Russian analyst believes that denuclearization is possible. The, irrespective of the attitude to the current government and its general policy at large. Uh, but Russia can play a role in the six-party talk because uh, it's seen by North Korea as the least unreliable partner. North Koreans don't trust Russians. They dislike Russians, but they dislike it less 
they mistrust them less than all other major players. Uh, so it's a lesser, the least of all evil forces from their point of view. And it gives some advantages. However, now when we have the current level of confrontation between China, Russia, United States, I cannot see multi-party uh, uh, multi diplomacy coming back right now. Uh, because with the current level of friction, it's difficult to cooperate. It was not easy when relations were so much better. So in the long run, yes, it's possible and even likely. Yes, Russia will have a role exactly because it has so little interest. It's not perceived by North Korea as a threat, relatively. Uh, it's not trusted, but it's, well, they are much more afraid of South Korea or China, by the way, China. Even though they look, it looks like they are cozy to China now, but um, don't take it too seriously. So yeah, in the long run, yes, but not now. Thank you, Andre. Jean, let me give you the final thought and we'll close. I will just note that we haven't seen the complete details from the Biden administration's North Korea policy review. And I think that we'll perhaps learn a bit more about that, that about it that this week. And so I think that's why this conversation is so interesting to come at this time. I think that these are all really interesting ideas, whether or not Russia can be brought into that multilateral diplomacy, whether they will step forward and take a role, whether they are able to bring North Korea out of its isolation, how much they will be providing in terms of aid. They have provided food aid over the past year, uh, perhaps on vaccines. Um, I think all of this is in flux right now, uh, but it's important to consider. And I think that it's Russia has been a quiet player, uh, but it's important to, to look and see where the opportunity lies for North Korea to play a constructive role, um, as well as where they might play a disruptive, play a disruptive role. But thank you so much, Matt, and to Dr. Lenkov. Yeah, well, let me let me echo that. Thanks, Jean, and, and simply say the whole point of this Global Perspectives series is to do exactly what we've done today, which is to bring you uh, a Russian expert working in South Korea, talking about North Korea to an American and European and, and broader audience. Uh, I'm so grateful for that opportunity. We touched just barely on a number of issues, including the pandemic. There's a lot more to unpack there. You know, obviously a lot of deeply baked in perspectives. Andre, I appreciated the way that you challenged a number of the assertions that, that my questions implied and that audience questions implied. So we'll continue to do this again and we'll certainly come back to the topic of, of Russia and the Korean Peninsula. Thank you all so much and uh, everybody have a great day.